1: share with other animals the experience of violence, of pain, fear, and loss, but human beings are the only species that reflects on those experiences and names their sources evil. From earliest times to yesterday's news, humankind has always been concerned, some might even say obsessed, with evil. Nevertheless, so far we've failed to understand evil fully scholars and philosophers, theologians and psychologists, and thinkers of all persuasions continue to struggle with the existence of evil. Today, we'll be talking about the contemporary stage in that struggle. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Jerome Gelman about his book, The History of Evil, from the mid-20th century to today. Jerome Yehuda Gelman is Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, an honorary professor at Australian Catholic University. He has published widely in Analytic Philosophy of Religion and in the Constructive Jewish Theology. Yehuda Gelman, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Why study evil?
0: Well, this, this book, uh, which I edited, is the sixth in a series of books on the history of evil. And it represents what thinkers and philosophers have said about evil. Because evil is so much part of our lives. It's not something that intrudes on an otherwise jolly life but it's built into the very nature of the world and the nature of our existence. And we are called upon to face evil almost on a daily basis, sometimes great and horrendous evils. And it is part of the human nature to have to deal with evil, theorizing on evil and get it going ahead
1: Some people say that human evil is built into nature. In the plant and animal worlds, everyone is somebody else's potential lunch. Evil, therefore, is merely a byproduct of evolution, and such ideas as survival of the fittest, the will to power, and the like can explain all human evils, tribalism, war, slavery, cruelty, Tell us what supports that point of view, and what's unsatisfying about it?
0: in In philosophical discussions of evil, there are two categories. One is called moral evil, which is close to what you are explaining now or describing now. And that is evils that are perpetrated by one person or one group to another person or to another group. There are also what philosophers call natural evils, which pertains to hurricanes, tsunamis, uh, and earthquakes, and the like. Now, it is a fact that we are, as far as moral evil, the one that you've been raising about interpersonal evils, that humanity, as well as other animals, has a great, great desire for self-preservation, which becomes a desire for all concomitant and related things, which can aid our self-preservation and our reproduction. Now, this is the an explanation insofar as we are talking about evolutionary theory or even without evolutionary theory. This is a fact about humanity. And that has to do with the fact that we are so much in uh, danger, you might say, or having to solidify our positions in the world from a naturalistic point of view. This is all a matter of evolution. From some religious points of view, and I personally uh, bear a religious understanding of evil, to some extent or other, it is only God who is totally giving and has no self-interest. And what God has created is a world in which we have self-interest and are dominated in self-interest. But we don't stop there. The purpose of our existence is to overcome, to whatever degree is possible, this egocentric stance in the world, and to become godlike. That is, to transform ourselves into creatures that are giving and loving in place of our own selfishness and egocentric positions. That's how I see it.
1: The time period covered in this volume includes the largest and most systematic and horrifying evil the planet has ever seen, the Holocaust. In what way does massive evil present a different philosophical or psychological challenge than evil on a smaller scale?
0: Massive evil says something about something large. About humanity. The Holocaust was perpetrated by a culture that was very developed intellectually, scientifically, in literature. It was perhaps the leading cultural country in the world at the time. And it tells us that there are two levels to the human psyche of the human soul. One is the the level, which we might say is an above-level level, which we recognize. And there is beneath that another level, a dark level, which is sometimes subsumed by the former, repressed by the former. But we now know to what extent it is there and latent and built in to human psyche. There have been since the Second World War and since the Holocaust there have been experiments in which uh, this has come out. The famous experiments in which people were told to uh, impose electric shocks on subjects and they were able to impose electric shocks of great great uh, amounts to people because they were told to do so, or that was part of the experiment. And this was far beyond what would be considered to be proper behavior. So, what happens now is that since the Second World War, we are in a position of dealing with human evil on a mass scale. It's no longer a matter of this country or that country or this person. Or that person. That's what gave rise to the United Nations, where the United Nations is solving the problem or helping the problem is a matter of dispute. That's what gives rise to so many of the post war, post Second World War movements and attempts. It can lead to a great pessimism and to a great sadness. That which is something, I think, which we're also seeing in the, in the world's scale. That's how I see it.
1: You mentioned um, religious approaches and uh, where the idea of evil is the challenge to overcome the inclination to evil, which is the uh, self-interest, egoistic uh, natural character of of human beings and actually other animals too. Um, What is the free will defense that argues that the existence of God is logically compatible with evil in the world? And also, uh, give us some idea of how mystical religious uh, thought views evil.
0: Well, as far as the free will defense, there are— That name covers a number of different uh, philosophical positions. Classically, the free will defense was that God was not responsible for moral evil. That is the evil which human beings perpetrate. (coughs) Because uh, it's human beings who are given free will by God. And our having free will itself is a value, something of great value. Because free will is necessary for the production of good. If we were merely robots, then whatever we did would have no moral significance. And once we have free will, then it's in our hands to do evil. But since we have free will, God will not intervene in, the, in that exercise of that free will. Now, there are various problems with that position. It might explain some of It might explain or defend God from some evil, but there are various problems with that position which might ask, well, then why can't God interfere with uh, some horrendous evils, extreme evils, which might be more worse than the good which free will affords to the world? More recently, the free will defense is a more complex position, and here, we really can't go into it in great detail in the time that we have. I, I apologize for that. But the position, the position here is more like um, it could be that God could not have, pre- have created any world in which nobody chose to do evil, that any world God could create would be such that some people would choose to do evil. And the reason for that might be because if God gave free will, God cannot then determine that the people who have free will should choose only good because that would take away their free will. The idea is to try to, in a very abstract way, (coughs) to uh, absolve God from the freedom of our will. I might add here that there is a position which wants to go beyond explaining moral evil in terms of free will, to explain also natural evils in terms of free will. Earthquakes, tsunamis, uh, forest fires, and the like, as do not the human free will, obviously, but to the free will of the devil, or the devils, that they freely choose to... uh, to bring about earthquakes or the like, and that their free will is the most valuable gift, which justifies this, that is going a bit uh, too far, I think.
1: Right. <laughs> I mean, religions have <clears throat> different views of unity and uh, duality, uh, both on the earth and, and uh Cosmically. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, And what about uh, mystical views of evil? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Like the Sufi or actually every religion has its mystical aspects. Well, there are
0: different views. Uh, It depends what mysticism you're talking about. Uh, In Buddhist mysticism, for example, with which I'm familiar, the Buddhist uh, positions, you don't... don't, uh, do away with evil, but uh, so to speak. But you learn to, as it were, neutralize evil in your own consciousness, so that a Zen master could say, "It's indifferent to me whether you give me a million dollars or whether you now kill me on the spot." It, it's an indifference. It's a cultivation of indifference to evil with the purpose of becoming uh, calm, tranquil, and happy. In Jewish mysticism, if we take, for example, the Hasidic mysticism of the Chabad uh, Hasidism, all of our existence is not an actual real reality. We are a form in which the divine reality appears as a worldly reality so that the evil, which is uh, part of our world, in the final analysis is not a, I would say, an ontologically basic element of existence and that when we overcome this uh, crust, as it might be over the divine being, it will be resolved that there is no, there is no evil. There's a famous story about a Hasidic person, who Rizusha was his name. He was asked to explain how God uh, allows evil, and Rizusha was a very poor man. He had uh, only they say one shirt to his. Uh, in his whole repertoire of clothing, and he said he really can't answer that question because he has never experienced any evil. This is far beyond the you and me, of course, and I wouldn't turn it down, you know, on its face. But it's not going to help people who have endured serious uh, tragedies and sorrows. Lost a son, people have lost a daughter. People have lost a close one, for example.
1: Um, getting as far away from mysticism as we can, uh, and still staying in the religious realm, um, let's look at uh, Paul Tillich's emphasis on courage. Um, how how does courage help a believer deal with evil?
0: Well, there is a uh, Courage, which is not so acceptable from my religious point of view, but it also is acceptable. Not acceptable in the sense in which it uh, puts all of the uh, responsibility on our own actions. That we have, we are the ones who have to act. Who have to act courageously in the face of evil. That would be to remove God from the picture. But there is a courage which asks us to act forcefully and fully against evil and not to give up. This is part of uh, much of uh, religious thinking, except uh, you have in old Christianity what was called quietism which uh, did not recognize this. The quietists thought that you don't do anything. What God wants will happen whether or not you act. Quietism was roundly rejected by the church. There were some Hasidic and Judaism uh, views that were of a quietist nature, but they were also rejected. They are called upon to act forcibly against evil with reason and with understanding. So I think that the courage is part and parcel of also what it means to be human. We don't give up. We don't give up easily. When we do give up easily, it's seen as a kind of aberration on human behavior. That's about what I have to say on that.
1: Okay, well, let's... Let's move away from religion for a moment and uh, look at si- science and so called reason. Um, wh- one of your chapters mentions the science of evil and the evil of science.
0: <laughs> yes. Um,
1: and so, so, talk about the rationalist attempts to explain evil and the evil perpetrated in the name of value free science.
0: Well, <clears throat> scientists have made attempts to uh, talk about the sources of evil this is a large topic as explaining them in scientific terms you could talk about uh scarcity of uh, of goods you could talk about uh psychological needs and the like the evils of science have to do with uh what scientists have cooperated with. There's a difference here between the evil of science and the science of evil. Science of evil is a cooperative effort. The evil of science is more a matter of individuals or particular cultures. The euthanasia that was practiced by the Nazis, for example, or the uh, scientific mo- movements which were part of, uh, let's say, a minority, such as uh, reading different uh, physical traits of a person as dooming that person to be evil and the like. Much of that, of course, has gone by. But scientific explanations of evil are, as you say, attempt to be uh, neutral, to be um, valued, volume neutral just one second i have a note on that in my notes can i can you ask sure. for a second <laughs> sure. uh, this is a this is an article which is written by ted peters and uh his his view is that the uh <clears throat> the evil of science is mostly in technology and not in science itself that is in the way in which Science has given rise to technologies which can be used for evil. Uh, And this comes out in what some people would ascribe to the uh, Hiroshima-Nagasaki bombings, which is controversial. Uh, But we see it all the time now uh, in technology. So the the evil of science is really more the evil of technology. And... uh, Ted Peters wants to make this distinction between technology and evil in itself, so to speak.
1: Mm, that, that's interesting, because we can say all technology, beginning with fire, has the potential for evil. So, yes.
0: That's true. Um, that, that's
1: certainly part of it.
0: That's our, that's our free will, yes.
1: Yeah, and that you mentioned uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, brings up the subject of war. Uh, Another thing that's been with us from the very beginning, I think few people would disagree that war is evil, even if it is sometimes necessary. Uh, What are the philosophical and moral differences between war and terrorism?
0: Okay, that's good, because uh, there are two articles in this uh, volume. One uh, uh, by... uh, Primeraz, about terrorism, and he defines terrorism the following way, and then I'll get to to war. Uh, first, the fact that terrorism becomes a topic in the last uh, 70 years of philosophical discussion of evil because of the obvious proliferation of terrorism around the world. So here's how Primeras defines terrorism deliberate violence against innocent people, civilians, for the purpose of intimidation or coercion against other people. Now here's the point. It's it's deliberate violence against innocent people or civilians. In a war, as defined as war, it's not deliberate violence against innocent civilians, insofar as it's war. People... Innocent civilians might be uh, hurt or, or killed by war, but insofar as it's war, it would not be deliberate violence against them. Secondly, the main purpose of a war is not necessarily to coerce other people, but it would be to defeat the people against whom you are issuing the violence. And that's what I think is a good distinction between war and uh, and terrorism. Now, war uh, is uh, brought up in an article by Fiala in the volume on pacifism and evil. And here is, uh, we have to talk about the Catholic doctrine of a just war. Uh, the Catholics have a doctrine of just war in which, the war has to be justified on moral grounds. So the very idea that you have an idea of a just war means that you recognize that there are wars that are unjust. And the, the justification of the war has to be uh, uh, strong enough and great enough with sufficient restrictions in order to make it justified. And one of the main restrictions is the protection of civilians, so when you're waging war the war might involve terrorism within it that is within within the war if one uh attacks civilians purposefully deliberately uh innocent civilians and with a purpose of uh say coercing other civilians uh to surrender to your troops who will then uh kill them that that's a terror that's terrorism within war but a just war would not have any terrorism with it even though it might involve people who are innocent being killed by the a, a just warfare or warfare event and here we might have arguments about was this war war act Sufficiently conscious of the result for innocent people—that would be the difference. Now, as far as passivism, which I also want to take a second to talk about, there are uh, there are pros and cons. I, when I was a uh, undergraduate in philosophy, about a hundred years ago or so, I had I had a teacher. Who told us that until the Second World War, he was an absolute pacifist. He would not participate in any war whatsoever. But when it came to the Second World War and the fight against Hitler and the Nazis, he enrolled. He he enrolled in the army and fought in Europe against the Nazis. So there is there was in him a, a, a moment of break. From his avowed pacifism, and, I, and he was very earnest pacifist, to the point where he thought that pacifism was morally evil. And one of the arguments against pacifism is the pacifist is going along with evil and allowing it to increase. Unless you act violently against evil, you are, you are committed. All right? You were implicated in allowing this to go on. So the, what the pacifist answer often is, yes, we have to combat the evil, but in uh but in pacifist ways. There are other ways to do it. And here I might mention Mahatma Gandhi who advised the Jews in in Europe to uh do civil disobedience against the nazis the way in which the indians did civil disobedience against the british for example when they protested the british monopoly on the sugar factories they went and one, one at a time they walked up to the gates of the sugar factories and the british clobbered them on the head okay and knocked them out one after the other so he was advising that for the nazis
1: yeah passive resistance that, so that- Right, that would not have worked.
0: Which, they, right. which the Jews would have been mowed down in a moment. They would have all been murdered and killed and made the Nazis extremely angry, etc. and so on. So this idea that you could combat evil in other ways than violence is true in many cases, but it cannot justify pacifism.
1: Now, sometimes evil appears to be a result of intolerance, for example, a fanatic's refusal to grant the space for someone to think or act differently. Uh, Let's look at the role and limitations of tolerance. In a world of diversity, most of our listeners would consider religious pluralism to be a good thing, but there would be less agreement about moral relativism So tell us, what's similar and what's different between pluralism and relativism?
0: Okay, that's a good question, because I am not a uh, pluralist, which if you define pluralism as every view is as good as every other view, uh, except perhaps if a view is morally evil, then that would lead to moral relativism, I think, in a, in a quite a direct way, although there are a lot of people who would argue with me. In the book, there's a chapter by uh, Robert McKim on religious pluralism. He argues of the benefits of religious pluralism. There's benefits of variety, and that one religion can learn from another religion. So when I said I'm not a pluralist, I didn't mean that I'm not open to learning or to recognizing. In religions other than mine, I am a follower of the Jewish religion, uh, of great, great value in other religions, and uh, this is kind of a uh, semi, semi pluralism, but it can lead to moral relativism. We have in the in the book an article by, um, let me see, I have to remember, yes, by uh, Kellenberger who argues, uh, who, do, who analyzes, rather, various positions of moral relativism. But what's very interesting here is that uh, up to, uh, really up to the Second World War, there was much more inclination of anthropologists to argue for moral relativism than after the war, in that it, was, it became almost a commonplace of anthropology that we cannot judge other cultures by our own moral standards because cultures have their own internal moral standards and we are to respect those moral standards. Who are we to say that their moral standards are any less valid than our moral standards? Now, if you think of it, that is really an incoherent position because if I see somebody In another culture trying going to murder somebody else I will not ask myself what are the moral standards of that culture before I try to prevent that I will impose my own moral standards as being absolutely correct and have to be applied but the fact is this wasn't so much known to me Cullenberger shows that this has declined. This anthropological position has declined, and I think it's it's a question of, well, of asking, well, you know, according to the Nazis, there were two kinds of things that had to be exterminated, and this I'm quoting from the Nazi uh, ruler or uh, commissioner for all of Poland under Nazi rule. There are two things that have to be exterminated, rats and Jews. Now, do you would you say that because that is an internal moral position within Nazi Germany that this is to be respected? Obviously not. And so, this whole idea of moral relativism has to come up at heads with the realities mm-hmm. of moral relativism. Now, the issue here is quite, uh, quite uh, complex because, for example, the uh, the uh, position of feminists with regard to uh, female circumcision, so-called in, in some cultures, the issue becomes, well, do we impose our moral, our feminine moral values on that culture? Or do we say, well, in that culture, that is, that is the norm. And therefore we have to respect it. And here is is a really a difference of opinion within some feminist positions This happened with regard to uh, the position of black women within black society in the United States and in the west. The same uh, sort of question do we well sorry you
1: can look at at European countries today uh, who are passing laws outlawing, uh, circumcision, which is a problem both for Jews and Muslims, uh, because they argue that it is child abuse to, uh, put a knife on the body of a, an infant or a, a child, um, for, not for health reasons. Um, similarly, cruelty to animals restricts both Jews and Muslims in, uh, in Europe different places from slaughtering meat according to their traditional laws so that's the that's the other side even though we all agree that child abuse is a bad thing practitioners of those religions believe it's very important to perform that fundamental religious act how would philosophy look at that
0: well philosophy is philosophers and we all are we all argue about that in fact a famous philosopher once said there's one only one thing true about philosophy that whatever you say it doesn't work <laughs> <laughs> nothing works so i do that i say what i have to say with some uh, some uh, reticence but but look first of all someone has said i say i think quite uh, quite directly that if we really thought that it was wrong to have a to allow uh, abuse. I mean, we shouldn't have any children. Because I know that the child that I have, even if completely healthy, will suffer in his or her life uh, all kinds of uh, evils and even abuses of one sort or another. So if I really thought that... We are responsible to prevent all abuses i think we would have to come to the conclusion that we should not have children but at, at the same time we can have we we can see that yes uh causing pain to the baby is uh is a is an evil but it can be outweighed by other things uh and that is the position of muslims and of jews of course besides which uh uh, the issue here has to do with uh, religious values versus, uh, you might say, human values. And this is a large, large issue, which is now being, thankfully, being uh, fought out in a way which was never fought out before in, in, in human history. So we are in a stage of human development in which these issues are coming out explicitly and being faced uh, honestly. Uh, and this we are just in the middle of having to work out such issues as the one that you are, uh, you are raising An- now.
1: Another popular notion uh, these days is uh, subjectivism, speaking one's own truth as being definitive uh, in some way because it's individualistic and it's true for, for you. How does the discipline of philosophy view that notion, that idea?
0: Well, uh, that's interesting because in a new book that I just authored, it just came out last month I have a chapter which includes that kind of thing, but look uh, one can see it as simply an extension of uh, egoistic, uh, self-centered desires What it's saying really is that I want to do what I want to do and nobody can stop me Uh, So, uh if that's what it is, and often I think that's what it is, then we should uh, decry it. We should uh, we should reject it. On the other hand, there's something healthy about it in that the, we are allowing people to be more free than perhaps otherwise. Allowing them to think for themselves is good. But it certainly cannot be a moral position. The, in philosophical understanding, the definition of a moral statement is that it is universalizable, which is to say that it doesn't apply only to a particular position, particular context or particular person, but it's universalizable. If you think it's, it's right for you to steal from somebody else, if that's to be a moral assertion, Rather than simply a a particular uh inclination, then it must be universalizable if you think it's okay for you to steal if that is a if that okay is a moral one, then you are committed to saying it's okay for everybody to steal, and that would include include yeah include yeah. right you you would you would, it would that would include it's okay for people to steal from you
1: okay that's that's an important that's an important distinction yeah so there seem to be two different uh, views of human nature that that permeate many of the chapters um it i at least in my reading of it, it one view says human beings are born good basically good and circumstances cause them to become or to act in an evil evil way the other view is simply the opposite that people are born bad they're selfish driven by base impulses and they are socialized hopefully <laughs> to uh, to be better what do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of each position and did immersion into the subject persuade you in some you way? You got me
0: stumped. You finally have you finally have stumped me. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard for me to say. Yeah. I, I can only took, tell you I can tell you what goes <laughs> in my I can only tell you what goes <laughs> on in my mind when I hear this question or I think about this. But we now know about DNA. Okay. And we know about uh, uh, genetic inclinations of human beings. And we know they can be for the good and they can be for what we call evil. But that's, that's on the one side of it. We also know of cultural uh, input which can be uh, for the good or for the bad. And we know of how people are influenced by both of them. It's hard to say. Look, I, I, uh, I, I, it's hard to say what, which of them really counts for the most except that in uh, the demand for self-transformation from being an egocentric person to being an, other, an other-centric person, to be a giving person, I find it to be so damn difficult that I become more and more inclined to say that there's something genetically, a genetic barrier to our self-improvement. And that is why, hold on to your, uh, to your seat, that is why in my new book I opt for a series of uh, self reincarnations, not in this world but in other worlds. A series of worlds in which we are reincarnated in accordance with our needs for self-transformation to the good. And there are different worlds that God has created. After all, why should God create only one world? God can create many worlds. And we cut, we've cut we passed through worlds in different kinds of worlds which are suited to our needs for self-development. And we ultimately will transform into God-like creatures, that is creatures who are loving and good and do not put our selfish needs before others. And I see that because of the great difficulty of self-transformation in this world. My God would not allow this to be the end of the journey. So I look forward to, all of us look forward to many such worlds. You don't have to stop the conversation now. Uh, We can get back to more uh, acceptable positions. (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, actually, you, you 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 segued us to exactly where we're going because we we have been talking quite a while, and I wanted you to have a chance to tell us about your new book, and if you like the one even before that, that's still pretty recent. Uh, first of all, you refer to to your newest book. What what is the what's the name? So, listeners, if they want to go find it, will know.
0: The name of the book is Perfect Goodness and the God of the Jews. Now, this book, in a sense, came out of my editing, the book we have been discussing here all along.
1: Oh, okay, to, that's, I, that's I, very I, good.
0: <laughs> yeah, I had to face directly and fully the issue of what appeared to be evil things that occur in the... Uh, Jewish Torah attributed to God, evil things attributed which seem to be part of the Jewish heritage or the Jewish tradition, as well as the general problem of evil. Perfect goodness in the God of the Jews. Can the God of the Jews, as depicted in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, can the God of the Jews, who is the creator of the world, can that God be considered to be perfectly good? So that book is dedicated to that question and to that issue. But mind you, I don't try to solve the problem in the book. That's beyond me. I leave that to uh, supernatural beings. The The purpose of the book is to help a believer to alleviate the problem somewhat and to allow their faith to be operative in a stronger way than otherwise. So that book deals with, uh, in great detail with the problematics of evil in the Jewish tradition and also with the problem of evil per se. And as I said before, it's not a matter of evil intruding into our lives. It's a matter of evil being an integral part of life, of being human and just of, of reality. The way we are born, we get, we live, we die, we suffer, etc., and so on. So, it's a issue not about why do bad things happen to good people—the name of a famous book—but why is the evil so integral, so, and sometimes so blatantly obvious in the very structure of, of our reality. And that book tries to help to lighten the issue uh, to the point where faith in God can have a stronger uh, operative role in life. Uh, but a lot, in, a, in a great sense, that book came about as a result of my editing this book, which told me well. Because in this book, also, by the way, and I should mention that there's an important there's an important uh, chapter which deals with religion. And, and evil, in which uh, is taken up the whole issue of religion as being a force for evil in the world, whether it's religion or just human beings using religion. Uh, my other book, was, pre- previous to that, was a, a different topic that had to do with the Hebrew Bible and history. In a way, it's related to that. Uh That is a book about uh, the necessity to uh, uh, agree that the Hebrew Bible, the Torah in particular, uh, can no longer be thought to be historically accurate all the way through. And I think that the, 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 the development of that understanding, of that consciousness, is something that has been revealed to us by God uh, which is the title of the book this was from God one who picks it up may think oh he's arguing again for the Bible being divine but that this was from God in that book <laughs> is saying that this was from God the scientific development which shows that not all the historical claims in the Bible can be taken as such this has been provided this understanding is from God, and it's making us come to a different understanding of the nature of Judaism and the nature of the Torah. So these are large topics which we might talk about at a different time. But uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> absolutely, and uh, and I I wish you success with the newest book and the one before that, and uh, and more power to you. It's hard enough to keep up with reading your work. It's amazing that you continue to uh, have the strength and the interest and the uh, dynamic to, uh, to produce them. So more power to you.
0: Well, I want to thank you as well because uh... – you, have, you have show a, a fine understanding of the issues. Your questions were very good and made good sense. And I want to congratulate you for that because often an interviewer uh, shows that she really doesn't know what, the, what it's about. <laughs> In this case, you prove that you are very, very much uh, aware and understand very well the issues. And I thank you for this opportunity to talk about them.
1: And thank you for being on the show today. And thanks as well to Bela Pasikov, our researcher. Bye-bye, Yehuda. Take care. Bye-bye.